0: Hello, Hopkins Biotech Podcast listeners. We have an awesome interview coming up, but first we want to tell you about an exciting new show coming to our network called My PhD. My PhD is a show by you, for you. We want researchers at any level to tell us about the amazing science that they're working on. This short interview style show will provide you the opportunity to share your passion in a public forum. Think of it like your own personal podcast that you can share with family, friends, or importantly, recruiters and hiring managers. The first episode featuring JHU School of Medicine PhD candidate Gian Molina-Castro will be released this week right here on this feed. Be on the lookout for more details about how you can get involved. Now on to our show. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast Insights segment, where we investigate major topics that are shaping medical treatments today. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media, and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Joe Varielli, and I'm joined here by my co-host.
1: Hi, I'm Jenna Glatzert.
0: Our guest today is Christy Weiskill. Christy is the Senior Advisor to the President of Johns Hopkins University for Innovation and Entrepreneurship and the Executive Director of Johns Hopkins Technology Ventures. JHTV is a division of the university responsible for technology transfer, industry research partnerships, and Startup Acceleration under the brand Fast Forward. Prior to her appointment at JHTV in 2013, Christy co-founded two startups and had an extensive career as an institutional investor in the life sciences and healthcare space. Christy, thanks for joining us today.
2: Thanks so much, Jenna and Joe. Happy to be here.
0: So we foreshadowed your career trajectory a bit in the intro, but I'm hoping you could give us a bit more background about how you ended up running JHTV and how your experience in both company founding and institutional investing has allowed you to excel in your current role.
2: Yeah, no. Well, thank you so much. I love talking about this because I'm as passionate about uh, the business as I am about the science. And I, I do get to work with some of the most incredible scientists in the world you all are part of that you're in these labs you're seeing the these breakthrough innovations happen each day and and really the reason i wake up every morning is to try to take what you're doing and these incredible inventions and help you bring them to market so it's a it's a it's a very special and fun job but i will say this and really this is kind of general career advice for anyone i didn't plan to be here this is not a job i actually applied for this is not this was not some grand plan where I said, okay, by age X, I'm going to be working in academia. It was it was more accidental and it was really one of following my heart. So let me just tell you a little bit about that journey. So most of my career, I went to business school after undergrad. Um, I was actually in an economics and a languages major undergrad. I went to business school. And when I started in the world of investments, I worked in the healthcare space. And so what that meant is that there are public healthcare companies, medical device companies, life sciences companies, biotech companies. And I would work to analyze and understand those and then recommend those for the portfolio managers where I work to buy. So I was a stock analyst essentially. So I knew a lot about companies like Johnson and Johnson and Thermoelectron and companies that you've heard of uh, that you work with uh, in your, in your work and, and that, you know, as consumers. And there were, um, Well into my career, I was allowed to do not only public investing, but private investing. And at that point, I had been in Baltimore for some time. I was lucky enough to work at a large firm in town called T. Rowe Price, again, picking stocks, working in the healthcare space. And I I went to another firm where they let me also do some private investing. So I had really an eye on what was going on in the public markets, but I was watching young companies be very disruptive to the space. And I was an investor in a number of those companies. And I had never in my entire career invested in a company, public or private, in Baltimore. And I'll come back to that, but that's that's something important to know about about my journey. And so I I had this uh, I had this this great experience investing in private companies in other locations, some in Europe, some in California, some in Minneapolis. And I had some successes out of that. So investing very young companies, what success in the investing world means is. There's a, there's a liquidity event. So they go public and investors get their money back or they get bought by another company and they get to scale. So success in the investment world. I had several of those happen. These, uh, these They're called exits in the investment world within a finite period of time. And it was that moment where I kind of looked at, i have been in, in the world of Wall Street for about 20 years at that point. I'd been living in Baltimore for about 10 years at that point. And I said, you know, I, I, it's really interesting to me that there's so much going on in healthcare in Baltimore in the research space, yet not in the company space. I didn't really understand the connection and I, I knew virtually nothing about university life sciences. And I'm hoping I can really relay that to folks on this podcast. It's not some mystery. I'm hoping that I can, um, to really help explain it further because I was interested in it, even though I knew nothing about it, But I but I had this sixth sense that There are these great inventions happening. Why couldn't there be more companies, which would be great for the world? There would be more products coming. There would be great for Baltimore. There would be more jobs here. There would be more opportunity. There would be an ecosystem. And so I ended up quitting my Wall Street job, rolling up my sleeves, and really thinking hard about how I could be most impactful in the Baltimore region. So I started meeting with people, meeting with scientists, meeting with startups, meeting with business people. I I kept a spreadsheet at one point. I think I did 150 meetings in six months. Just everyone that was working on something potentially commercial, and it became very clear that there was an opportunity. So I, I made a couple of investments. I actually started a couple of companies with Hopkins faculty members, PIs, uh, clinicians, and I saw very quickly there was a reason that there weren't more companies here, and that was that there were there was no infrastructure for this. There was nowhere for these companies to locate. There were no mentors. There were no. Uh, connections to investors, there, there just wasn't the ecosystem that you needed. You need a, you need accountants. You need uh, people that you can hire. You need lawyers. There are all these, these places. They existed in pockets, but there wasn't anywhere if someone was trying to start a company out of a lab like you all, for them to go. And so I, I was, I watched these faculty members that I work with go through this, and I watched the frustration levels, and I watched them try really hard, and I finally just. I took an evening I remember I was particularly frustrated about this this one situation and I took an evening and I just wrote sort of kind of all came out of me cathartically a white paper that said this is how Baltimore could bring more products to market. It wasn't specific to Hopkins although Hopkins of course does the bulk of the the research in in region. And so I started sharing that just with some friends locally. Wouldn't it be great if we had this? Wouldn't it be great if we had that? And uh and it, it was one of those Individuals who happens to run a foundation in town that cares deeply about the city that said, There's someone that I, I want to introduce you to. I want him to hear what you're saying. And his name is Ron Daniels, of course, the president of Johns Hopkins, now my boss. And at the time I remember thinking, well, why would the president of Hopkins want to meet with me? That that seems like a stretch, but I mean, if this person's setting it up, I, I should go and, and share what I had to say. So I in some ways I had nothing to lose. I wasn't, it wasn't an interview. I, I wasn't, I was just very truly and genuinely interested in how can we help great people do great things on the market? And and let me just pause and describe a little bit about one of the things I talk about. So dialysis, you all are PhD students at Hopkins. You should know the history of, of this great scientific institution among the many things we've invented. Dialysis was invented in 1913 and published at Johns Hopkins, okay? We proved it in animals, we published and we moved on. Later in the 1950s, some very uh, ingenious engineers that had nothing to do with Hopkins decided to make a machine that actually dialyzed patients that were in end-stage renal disease. Well, in the intervening 40 years or so that it took us from invention to someone to make that product, untold millions of people died. To me, that is not okay. What we're doing here is a moral calling. It's wonderful that we're doing great science in the lab, but things do not jump off the pages of nature and science into a patient's mouth or vein. They just don't. We've got to make a product. And if you're going to make a product, you have to partner on the commercial end. So that's my that's when I speak to, to faculty and, and to students like you, I, I say that there's there's nothing in this that's specifically about the money or about the business. It's really about the impact. And so when we had these, I had this conversation with President Daniels. I did a couple of projects for him. I was trying to stand these companies up and find the right business and scientific folks to run them. And finally, President Daniel said, "You know, you seem to really have a passion and a vision for this. Will you come and help me build an ecosystem in and around Johns Hopkins to do that?" So that is the very long version of how I came to this really, really exciting role.
1: That's incredible, and I want to talk more about you know some of the infrastructure and some of the people that are involved at tech ventures um, in a little bit. But getting into sort of what makes it unique now, what makes Hopkins ecosystem, what makes tech ventures unique now from specifically the discovery and commercialization lens. Um, I'm wondering if you could provide us with some insight on what the actual process of getting that discovery that's in the pages of nature, you know, off the page and what that process of commercialization looks like, even potentially at the pre-intellectual property filing stage. And so what this might look like, you know, for inventors, and also how a tech transfer office needs to consider all of these factors when they're thinking about the commercial viability of different sets of inventions.
2: Look, I, I think this is a this is one of the many wonderful puzzles that you all that work in the labs and and that wrestle with these problems get to think about. and And one of the many things you'll think about, and not just the experiment you should run and what you hope the outcome is, It's ultimately, and I would encourage, I think the the ultimate answer to this question is encouraging each and every one of you, whether you are the head of neuroscience or a first-year PhD student, to ultimately think about if this goes well, what could the ultimate impact be, right? So in neuroscience, and remember, I'm not a scientist. I think about this commercially. But in the neuroscience space, there is a lot of unmet need around dementia and Alzheimer's and you know, all sorts of, um, and, and you just, you saw there's a big drug approved that, that doesn't really work. And yet there was this huge interest in it because nothing else works, right? So, you know, there's a lot of interest. And so when you go in that lab every day to work on the, the foundational science behind understanding disease and progression of disease, if I'm in your shoes, I'm thinking, okay, if, if, if I get this right to have the ultimate impact on the world, maybe it's this lab. That ultimately figures out and harnesses a drug to cure Alzheimer's, right? So that's the that is the high level focus of what we're trying to do. What is the ultimate product? So is it going to be a drug? Is it going to be a better way to diagnose and then figure out a way to treat? Is it going? Could could it be a a device that's implanted in the brain. I'm just using neuroscience as an example, because I think it's a good one there. There is so much undiscovered there. It's, it's really uncharted waters. We've cracked a lot of the basic understanding, but how can you, the, you talked about the pre-IP stage of this. I would encourage each of you, as you go into the lab each day to be thinking, what's the ultimate product? What is the? Is it going to be an antibody? Could it be gene therapy? Is it going to be a small molecule? Is it going to be a medical device? What is the ultimate product? A lot of time, uh, faculty members, students, others, inventors come to us with an assay, and they say, "Hey, we think we figured out how to do this test better, or figure this out better." My question, my team's question to that is, "So what? So what? And not so what like us? So what? But so so what? So what then?" And those of you that are in the scientific community, reading literature, going to these conferences, you know the cutting edge science, you know better than anyone what, is, what exists in the market and what doesn't. And it's even, it's even more powerful for those of you that are in the MD-PhD space and the MD space because you're seeing in the OR what doesn't exist. You're seeing when you treat those patients what you wish you had. So my advice would be let your imagination run wild. Think of, think of yourself as the person who will ultimately, with your lab, cure Alzheimer's. And what could that mean? Well, not only is it going to mean that that untold millions or, or tens of millions of patients will lead the end of their lives with dignity, it also means that there could be a company interested, and ultimately that could be billions of dollars of value created that could come back into the research enterprise to fuel even more research. So the way to think about tech transfer in a very simple way is things are discovered in a lab. Our group works with you, with your labs, to figure out if there is commercially relevant activity there. It doesn't mean that the science is good or bad. We don't opine on that. What we opine on is, can you protect it in some way? And can we ultimately find a commercial partner? Sometimes that commercial partner is a young company. We help you We help you start a company. Sometimes that's an existing company. We might have a large pharma company come out of the woodwork and say, oh, that's a that's a that could that that's a drug that could be in alzheimer's disease in phase 1 trials within 5 years can we partner with you on that can we give you more money to do that and and so that could come together so there are a lot of pieces along the way but essentially it it boils down to what what could the discovery be if everything worked out
0: yeah i like that perspective from the side of the inventor and even us as students who could potentially be inventors showing up to lab every day and, and thinking about the, the commercial potential of our research. And pulling from our experiences in the lab, we know that biomedical innovation requires an immense amount of effort and carries significant risk. So how do you view risk in the setting of really early commercial development and how might it be influenced by the type of technology being developed or the potential impact of the technology?
2: So when you talk about risk when it relates to biopharma, that risk is very straightforward, and, and we actually have a lot of good data on that. And we know that because of the tremendous number of failures even before human clinical trials, and certainly even when drugs are in human clinical trials, there are many, many steps along the way where a drug can fail. It can be too toxic. It cannot work well enough. We, we can't figure out how to titrate it. It might have side effects that outweigh the benefits, untold numbers of ways that for example, a, a biotech drug can fail. And so one has to consider that and, and get, get really good advice on how to design the, the, the work for the FDA to say, okay, FDA, we think we've done enough toxicity work to say this is not going to be too toxic. How do you design that first clinical trial? These are very technical things that, that my group doesn't necessarily have the skills, but we can help connect you with people that do. Hopkins itself has a very robust clinical trial organization. We do lots of clinical trials, so there's a lot of knowledge innate to the institution. I would like to come back to to your comment about students, because I I do think, and and I'm going to give you a specific example, that students can play an outsized role in really helping pushing the thought about the commercial success in the following way. A lot of the way that faculty members, particularly young faculty members that are seeking tenure, are rewarded are those papers, those those seminal papers published in the the highest profile publications, right? And people behave as they are measured. And so if they're measuring you on high impact papers and high profile journals, then that is what you will continue to do. You as a student though, can come to that lab meeting and say, have we also thought about this? Now, let me give you one of the, the most elegant and successful examples that I know of. There was a graduate student named Isaac Kinde, and Isaac worked in the Vogelstein lab. So, Bert Vogelstein, the most cited living scientist, right? He's a Hopkins professor. He works at the intersection of genetics and oncology. And Isaac, in Bert's lab with a number of other collaborators, figured out a way that there could be a test where we could diagnose cancer much earlier than it's diagnosed today, right? So, now we have some modalities of screening for cancer at a somewhat early stage. We have mammography, colonoscopy, um, you know, there are certain um, there are tests that uh, annual tests that women can undergo to screen for cervical cancer. There are, there are some tests, but there's not a broad test that one can say at a very early stage, let's try to figure out if a cancer is growing. And as Bert Vogelstein himself says, cancer develops over decades, not overnight. So the sooner you can figure out that there might be some malignancy growing you can do something about it. So Isaac figured out this test and it was published in a, in um, it was either science or nature, I'm forgetting now which one, but it was called the cancer seek discovery. And I remember the the day that it was published because we got approximately a dozen unsolicited calls from commercial entities, pharma companies, investors, and others saying, Hey, we want to license this. This is a really big deal. Well, Isaac, along with the collaborators in the Vogelstein lab had convinced them that there was a commercial application of this test. And if you fast forward to today, pun intended, they started a company, they did a clinical trial as part of that company. That company raised substantial venture funding. And just a few months ago, that company was bought by a a big company called Exact Sciences for a little over $2 billion. So there was commercial value there. Exact Sciences now wants to take that test that was developed and, and studied in clinical trials and make that into the next great cancer test. And what I believe is that in our lifetimes, that not unlike getting a cholesterol test every few years, that this is also a very simple blood test that one will get. So it's going to it's gonna change the face of medicine. It's going to change the way we approach cancer diagnosis and hopefully save a lot of lives in, in the interim.
1: It's definitely an absolutely inspiring story. And kind of getting into our next question, so you sort of mentioned, to some of the infrastructure that's involved, you know, having lab space, having, you know... Accountants having people that can file IP, and so this work definitely takes a village. In addition to having the labs and the scientists and the infrastructure for that, um, could you give a sense of who some of the people are at Tech Transfer specifically, um, and how they're involved in various steps of the process?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And just just a coda to the story about Isaac: he left the Vogelstein lab and went directly to the company, so he's. He's still working with the company. Exact Sciences acquired his company, so he's now an employee of Exact. But it's just, a, it's just one of the myriad examples of what one can do after a PhD at Johns Hopkins. You could, of course, go into academia, but there are many other highly impactful career paths. So I just, I just wanted to, um, to make sure to emphasize that. Uh, so the group at JHTV is but one piece of the ecosystem, and we do try to be, Jenna, as user-friendly as possible. And so we have a website, ventures.jhu.edu. And we try very hard to showcase the team, showcase if you're an inventor, here's where you go, here's how we can help. Um, And so I I do hope that people will use that site, give us feedback on that site, tell us what's working and what's not. But there are a few things that, that I would like to highlight. One is that if you think you have an idea there is a wonderful program that's funded by the National Science Foundation called ICOR. I don't have any of you, Joe, Jen, have you all. Been yeah, I-Corp?
1: we are. A recent episode we released. Um, ben Portney, he's an associated flagship. He talked about I-Corp. Um, He was a participant in it. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, but it might be helpful to have a refresher. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. So we well, we have dozens of teams from Hopkins that go through this program every single year, and it basically puts you through the paces to think about that commercial application. So. A lot of times, and you'll appreciate this, I think, working in a lab, a lot of times when the innovator comes to us, the, the PI, the, the student, they want to talk about the science, right? Well, we want to talk about the market. And so there's a shift that happens and i really helps to accelerate that shift, right? So that is, it's a program that basically forces you to go out and talk to potential customers. So let's go back to our example of the Alzheimer's drug, right? You could talk to Family practitioners, you could talk to nursing homes, you could talk to doctors who would prescribe, you could talk to uh, CMS, the government entity that might reimburse this. You could talk to folks from the FDA, You all the stakeholders in and around the universe. If this worked, what would that look like, right? And you really try to understand them. You, you don't so much ask them about your science, you ask them, what are your unmet needs? And likely what you would hear in, in the face of elder care is there are a lot of unmet needs around dementia. Here's what would be great. And here's how I would like, ideally, it would be a once a day oral or it would be IV once a week or whatever. You could, you could really get some good intel from doing what we call customer discovery. So one of the programs that we highly recommend, and by the way, you don't have to have the idea. These are teams you can join. We have um, a gentleman on our team named Ricky Venters. He runs the I-Corps program throughout Johns Hopkins as part of his jhtv responsibilities and he could just connect you with an existing team so if you're interested in the process and the ideation even if it's not directly related to your lab i would encourage you to to think about being part of an iCORE ICOR team for a few weeks just as a cycle to, to go through it so that's one the second is that fast forward which encompasses iCORE and it has a, a lot of other resources is really the home across johns hopkins for startups we have dedicated commercial space where people can rent space once they have venture funding and and are, have imp- employees and are really off to the races. Well, we also have student space. At, fast forward, you is our is our student-facing effort where you can really ideate and, and think about um, a startup that you as a student might want to create. So it really, we try to cover the waterfront as far as space goes. These are These are flexible, affordable spaces that one can rent. We also have a whole cadre of mentors in residence. These are folks who will oftentimes, they're alums, or they have an affinity for Johns Hopkins, maybe they're local, and they have built businesses in their career, or they have some sort of outstanding credential that makes them particularly special to help us through the needs of what one might need to start a business. We also have local law firms that have volunteered to give pro bono time to help people start companies. Uh, So uh, just a number of pieces within Fast Forward for Startups. The two other groups that one might want to be aware of in doing this work are tech transfer proper. And that is a a whole group of patent attorneys, licensing attorneys, um, and, and agents, and folks that are working towards getting a patent with the patent office. And they meet with you. They discuss it. They explain how we might file for a patent, what the claims would be, et cetera. So there's a whole group within tech transfer and that's run by a man named Steve Kosoros. By the way, someone named Brian Stansky runs Fast Forward. Brian and I have been investors for most of my career. In fact, we work at T. Rowe Price together. Then the third group is run by a gentleman who worked in industry for a while and also an academia named Paul Incansa. And Paul runs our corporate partnership group. And so, in, in the event that there is a corporate partner that's interested, for example, in sponsoring research in the lab towards a commercial product, Paul and his team can help really coordinate that. Think of them as your sports agent, right? You all are the athletes. You're you're sprinting. You're doing the work. We just want to make sure that you uh, that you get the best research deal for what you're doing, so that you can further your research when there are mutually agreeable goals. So those are the those are the three primary areas. One can really dock in as a student. You can dock in through the IP phase. If you, if you along with your PI and your lab, report an invention to us, you'll come through kind of the normal IP process. You'll meet with our licensing and our intellectual property management team. You could also come through an ICor program. You could also come through our student-facing programs. These are all front doors that we hope are, are accessible depending on where you are in your journey.
0: Yeah, I think that really sets the stage for us talking about commercialization within specifically the JHTV ecosystem and and gives us a good idea of all of those moving pieces and, and who's involved. Moving on to specifically the role of tech transfer at Johns Hopkins, I think we first want to highlight an incredible statistic that in your tenure at JHTV, Hopkins startups have raised close to $3 billion in venture funding. And you alluded to um, one of those successes, but with this in mind, can you tell us a bit more about some of the commercial success stories coming out of Hopkins Labs and maybe tie that into specifically what makes the Hopkins commercialization program unique?
2: Absolutely. So this was a program when I joined eight years ago that was not necessarily front of mind, top of mind for our research and our clinical community. And there were a host of reasons for that. It just, there hadn't been a lot of resources put into it. One had not necessarily thought of the point of view of a startup innovator and and their needs. And so there, there are a host of reasons, but Uh, But the good news is that once those pieces came together, and and by the way, we work with all nine schools. So whether you're listening as a student from the Peabody Institute or the Whiting School or at the School of Medicine, we work with all nine schools and and really do seek to be that that helpful front door to to any of these journeys. But what we've done in these eight years is, is take a dedicated effort to say, if these ideas are good and there's a real business around them, we want to get them funded. Because it just wasn't happening before. There was very little venture funding coming into companies that were started based on Hopkins research. And so we created an entire position of someone who does nothing but call on the venture community. I, I think Jenna, you mentioned you had someone from Flagship on. Flagship is but one of the venture firms where we have a maintain a very close relationship. And we often these firms are based in Boston or in, in California. And our, our team of dedicated individuals works with those venture firms and invites them to campus. And, and they really try to listen. So, for example, if if Flagship or Third Rock or 5AM or Deerfield, any of these very high caliber uh, healthcare investment firms said, you know, I really want to know what is the latest going on in cell and gene therapy? Or what's the latest going on in CRISPR-related diagnostics? Or what's the latest going on? in you know, pick pick any area. Then we would come back to Hopkins, try to do a landscape assessment and say, okay, if that's what you're interested in, let's try to set up meetings with these three labs and, or these five inventors or whatever, whatever the area of interest is do a very bespoke day for these types of firms. Of course, in a virtual world, you can do this on zoom, but, but pre pandemic, we would have them down. We would take them to dinner and listen to to what their needs were and how their firm was doing. And then we would sponsor a whole day and, and participate. And we also would get the faculty members and, and labs ready for those conversations because with investors, it's not a direct, it's not always a direct science conversation. They often want to understand what the commercial implications might be. So we spent a lot of time with with folks on the Hopkins end getting ready for those visits. And so um, so really connecting those dots as far as, um, as bringing investors in led us to do what I'm very proud of now, you mentioned the $3 billion. When, when you look back today from very little venture funding coming into Hopkins companies, we're now seeing about $500 million a year in venture funding come in. And in fact, the, the year that we just closed on June 30, that number, if you include the public equity financing, so total equity dollars, it was $1.2 billion. So a little over $700 million in venture and then the rest in public equity. Now, let me be extremely um, forthright about this. The venture market itself in life sciences is on fire. The macro environment is very, very strong. There's a lot of money coming into the sector. There have been a lot of breakthroughs. Uh, there, there There has been a lot of success. And so we're taking advantage of the industry tailwinds, but good on us. We planted enough seeds so that when investors had money and were ready, they wanted to also invest in Johns Hopkins companies. So we're seeing series A rounds. These are the that's a, a, the name I, I teach a business school, classic carry. So if I sound a little professorial in this part, I'll, you know, it, you have to forgive me, but this is the, the first round. It's usually called a, a series a round when the first institutional money. So this is not, this is not your friends and family. This is not some rich uncle. This is the first time that someone who is paid to invest for a living invests. It's usually called a series a, we used to see series a rounds for Hopkins companies a few years ago at five or $10 million. I, I was super impressed by that. That's a lot of money coming in. The latest A rounds that we've seen are 100 million dollar A rounds. I mean, these are these are investors willing to make huge bets, accelerate the science, hire as many people as you can to throw at the problem of getting a product to market and great on us because hopefully that means that the science will be that much uh, that further accelerated. But I am really proud of the team for doing such a good job working with these investment firms. I'm really grateful for the faculty members and the venture firms for working so well together. And just to see that ecosystem gel, to see those that job creation in Baltimore, these companies locate here. We're seeing about 40% of the companies, by the way, stay. It used to be that, that pretty much all, about 85% used to locate elsewhere. And so we've seen a big uh, sea change in that, which is really part of my passion. I really want to see this wonderful city grow, and and I, I really am not going to be satisfied until I see that the skyline of Baltimore is filled with the names of tech and biotech companies coming out of this great university.
1: As you mentioned too, uh, taking advantage of a really really powerful biotech market right now, but thinking more in the future, let's say bear market, there's less interest in biotech sector. How will Hopkins continue to differentiate itself as a commercial powerhouse? I know we earn some of the most funding from the NIH every year, but how do we take advantage of that and continue that strong research environment and convert it into practical and commercial discoveries?
2: Yeah, Jenna, my colleague, Brian Stansky, and I have these conversations and hand-wringings several times a month. He and I have been through many downturns. I think my number is four and his number is five as far as the market rolling over. And when the market, the public markets roll over, then the venture markets what's the phrase they you know one sneezes and then the other catches a cold or maybe during corona that's not the greatest analogy to use but um, but it's they they do tend to follow each other there's there's some connection there and I think Brian and I are bracing ourselves for a day when it's not up and to the right forever because no market is up into the right forever. There's there are disruptions happen you don't know why it can be drugs that are recalled it can be the government changes the way they reimburse it. There's, there's any number of ways that that we don't know exactly when the cycle flattens or turns. And so what I hope that we can do is is be in a position to have great relationships for firms that are still investing. There will always be some investment. It just may not be at the level that it is today. And so I think the way we differentiate ourselves is to make sure that we have these these dedicated relationships, that we are devoted to thinking about long-term relationships and that we are very thoughtful with our scientists about positioning themselves in the very best way they can to get that investor attention. Investors see for every thousand business plans that they see, they generally do some sort of deep dive or diligence on about a hundred of those. They might meet with 50 of those and they might do three deals. So for every thousand great pieces of science, only three in the end will get funded. So what we can do as a university is best position ourselves to be one of those three. And how do you do that? You put a great business presentation together to go alongside that science. So, so that's that's one of the, the many things that we think about.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned, too, that the statistic in terms of how many companies are staying, that are founded in Baltimore, now stay in Baltimore. So uh, up to 40% from, I think you said, 80 previously had been leaving. Um once they were founded in Baltimore. So, one thing that I'm wondering about, and if you could comment on, is how what's the status of the Baltimore tech biotech industry today, outside of Hopkins companies as well? Um, and then, how do you see Baltimore becoming a true biotech hub like Boston or the Bay Area?
2: And that's really my goal. And I I think I spent a lot of time on this. I spent a lot of time thinking about the ecosystem. And when I was a private sector person, I I didn't necessarily have an understanding for how economic development worked. I, I didn't have an appreciation for the role that state, federal, and local governments could play or how bringing things together and connecting dots could really make a difference. I just didn't. I just assumed that Companies got funded and things worked out, mm-hmm. and you know I didn't I didn't have an appreciation. And and now that I'm, I spend a lot of my time working with the mayor's office, the governor's office, the secretary of commerce, the folks that are very interested in in jobs in Maryland and the vibrancy of Maryland. I do see that there's a real role here. The question about the biotech market outside of Hopkins is it is that it it is mostly non-existent. There are Uh, A handful of companies at the University of Maryland Biopark, and they've had a couple of exits. There's also a very successful CRO that worked there. So there are um, limited number, but I think I can count on one hand the number of companies with any serious number of employees that are outside the world of Johns Hopkins spinoffs. Now, in, in Montgomery County, just to the south of here towards D.C., there is uh, quite a biotech corridor. In fact, the beginnings of Human Genome Sciences and Metimune were there, though they have both been purchased by large companies. Kyogen has a large uh, base here in Maryland. So there, there are some companies growing, uh, substantially growing in other parts, not necessarily in Baltimore. So that's as far as Maryland goes. But how can we Ultimately, and and this is the this is something that every single day I think about and and try my best to to put Baltimore's best foot forward. But how can we be on even footing with a Boston or a San Francisco? And part of the answer is I think it's important to remember that Stanford in the 1970s there was no tech ecosystem, and it was an engineering dean that looked out into the pastures of Palo Alto and said. I wonder if my friends, uh, Mr. Hewlett and Mr. Packard would be interested in putting their company in uh, in a space right here near campus. And so that, of course, spawned um, what we now know as Silicon Valley and, and the biotech hubs that have grown up around there. I think even if you went to Cambridge, you all are probably too young to remember this, but if you went to Cambridge, Mass. 25 years ago, it was tumbleweeds. There wasn't a lot there. Uh, it was a lot of gray stone in and around MIT, and that, of course, is the, the most vibrant biotech hub. That came to pass for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that, of course, the folks at the Broad and MIT and Harvard do great science and and there are great hospitals around um, like uh, Brigham and Women's and and Mass General. So they're, they're certainly the types of fodder that we have here in Maryland. But in 2008, Governor Deval Patrick made a billion dollar bet and he said, I want biotech companies to locate here. We're going to help them build. We're going to help train employees. We're going to whatever they need, we want to attract. And at the time, only one of the top 20 biopharma companies was located in the state. And now 18 of the top 20 have either moved their headquarters or have a substantial number of employees in the state of Massachusetts. And so they were very intentional about that effort. And so one of the things I am working on with a number of stakeholders here in the city and state is to say, what can we do to be an attractive force of good to have companies locate here? So stay tuned. It's just it's a daily conversation. There are some uh, very large federal grants, for example, that are up for grabs right now to help build ecosystems that we're working with a number of players um, around, including UMBC and UMD and um uh, sorry, UMB, University of Maryland, Baltimore, just to to think further about that. Um, but you know, I think there's I think it's an opportunity. The story is that in the early chapters as far as what that looks like. But I hope in 10 years when you all are starting your own companies that, uh, that there's a lot of critical mass.
0: Yeah. And JHTV is one really important arm of Hopkins that has a, a special role in bridging that gap between research and, and industry. What can you say about the role of Hopkins more generally in this whole process? How do you view that relationship between um, Johns Hopkins more generally in, in the Baltimore biotech industry?
2: Well, look, I I think President Daniels and the leadership and deans across Johns Hopkins have shown that they are very devoted to a number of things, including the neighborhoods around our campuses, including promoting job creation across the board, whether it's the Be Local and Hopkins Local initiatives that focuses on uh, hiring local vendors and local companies to do a lot of work in and around Hopkins. Um, and they're very focused on supporting companies that are that are being spawned out of Johns Hopkins labs and dorm rooms. And so I think the, the broader role of Hopkins is where does leadership stand? What do they think? And are they supportive of this? And I think the answer is emphatically yes. President Daniels took a big risk hiring me. I'm not an academic. I've never worked in a lab. I had never run a tech transfer office. I, I can say that eight years in, uh, but when I joined... I, I'm not a patent attorney. I, I I had to learn all of this, right? And again, I think another just another good life lesson is if you're passionate about it and you're interested in it, then you can figure it out. You're all you're you're all smart. You're getting degrees from Hopkins. You're there. I mean, you're you're way ahead of the curve here. You'll you'll figure it out. So if if anyone ever asks you to do something that you think is uh, I like to use the expression over the tips of my skis, right? It's that, that feeling of like, Oh, I'm going to fall. Just take it, take it and run with it because there's a way. So I I think in this case though, um, there is, there are department chairs that I speak to regularly from the school of medicine and and other schools. There are deans that that we work with regularly. There are many prominent PIs that we work with regularly. And, And I would say across the board, people understand how important this is to the city and to the institution and, and to students like you who, who care deeply about their careers and the impact that you can have on the world.
0: Tying this in together, I think it is really important that students should be engaged in the whole process that you've just discussed. And I think, you know, even though some of us are grad students in Baltimore only for a short amount of time, it, it makes sense to try to build that community and, and benefit a lot of people in the process. So so going back to the focus on students, you discussed Fast Forward U a bit at length, but how do you suggest, say, a Hopkins student or postdoc or uh, undergrad, um, how would they engage Fast Forward U if they do have an idea for a venture or some sort of technology?
2: Yeah, so the, the person that runs Fast Forward U is named Josh Ambrose, and, and he and his team have all sorts of accelerator programs for students from the youngest undergrad to the most seasoned postdoc and, and really everything in between. And so I would encourage you to look into those programs, to work with him, to come and be a part. There's a lot of programming that goes in. They have a number of speakers and mentors and, and ways that you connect, depending on where you are in the journey. We we like to say anywhere from the curious to the committed, we will we will make this happen. And so um, we, want, we want you to get involved. Joe, I think another thing in your better positioned to speak to this even than I am. But another way that students can get actively involved is to apply for our commercialization Academy at JHTV. We really do uh, rely and, and, and relish the opportunity to work with students who can help us understand the technology, put marketing summaries together. What could this be commercially? Who should we be marketing it to? And the students are integral to that work. And in fact, the way we've, we modeled this over, um, from a program that columbia university runs and after the after you've really showed your stuff for a couple of years at the commercialization academy you could basically be running the rest of um of the group and so we've we've arranged it in a way where there's an opportunity to learn how to manage others to learn how to some some leadership roles within business but i think importantly just to get that exposure to tech transfer even if it's not from your lab to see what's coming into johns hopkins to see what's what's part of the, um, of the daily work that we're doing and where the excitement is around which departments and which discoveries. It, it really gives you a bird's eye view. But again, Joe, you've been part of it. So, so you should tell us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for um, bringing that up. And uh, again, I can vouch for uh, the Commercialization Academy as a great way to be more involved in the Hopkins research ecosystem in general um, and really just learning about diverse sets of technology. We, we in grad school, Tend to have a very focused, very niche sort of understanding of our science, but understanding other people's science requires a, a different type of brain power that we don't normally use in our day-to-day work. So, I really appreciate uh, the the ability to to sort of dive into some other PIs' work uh, and try to help them understand potential markets for that work and and really understand the the academic research background and and activity that's going on in the sector. So it, it's a great program. Do recommend it for
2: thank you for, for students. Thank you for being part of it. Again, we are we hope the students get a lot out of it, but we also get a lot out of it because you're you're incredibly smart. You understand uh, exactly how to work with PIs. And so we're, we're very grateful.
0: So is there anything else that you want us to tell about, uh, tell us about, or uh, ways that people can engage with JHTV or or learn more?
2: Sure. A couple of things. First of all, I I would be remiss if I didn't, again, my third life lesson, I think I've given, you know, I'm a parent of teenagers and so I'm not afraid to dole out life lessons. I I don't know if my kids actually listen to me anymore, but I'm not, I'm certainly not afraid to dole out. So I I would say the third thing that I think is a theme along some of the things we talked about is the importance of building long-term relationships. So one of the reasons we've had so much success with the venture community is that we don't teach. We don't treat each and every transaction as a one-off. I was just saying to an investor friend earlier this week that he, he was afraid there was some things going sideways with a particular company, and he was a little bit worried about it. And you know, how was Hopkins going to re- react if they went in and made some changes? And I said, look, I want you all to do ten more deals with us. I want this company to be successful. You're an investor. We're all adults. I know you're going to do the right thing. And, and I think that that really made him feel better um, because sometimes investors have to make hard decisions about personnel and companies or direction of the science. I mean, these are all, these are commercial decisions. Investors get paid to make money for people to give, get the money back in some way. Right. So they want these companies to be successful. And so I would say whether it's at the commercialization Academy, working with investors, working with the tech transfer team, working with your PIs, these are all relationships that hopefully will help you in life. And so just approach and treat every single one of these engage in um, encounters as a way to build a long-term relationship. The, the one place I would just like to highlight a lot of the work that we've talked about is our annual report. So we just put out our 2021 annual report. We are a June 30 year end. And so as we close that year, that's where some of the statistics we talked about as far as venture funding are, but you'll also be able to read about our licensing revenue, which is steadily moving up. So these are, this is the dollars that come in as a result of these licenses with startups and and bigger companies. You can also read about some of the fast forward U programming Uh, Fast forward, you, the student, have actually also has its own annual report, so you can read dedicated efforts about that. But just encourage you, if you want to learn more, to to seek that out uh, from our website as well.
1: Okay. Well, Christy, this was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for talking with us about your background, your vision for Hopkins Tech Ventures, and for Baltimore itself. And it was just wonderful to hear um, your thoughts on this and your experience
2: Well, Jenna and Joe, I I very much appreciate the invitation and hope that you'll come visit us at at Fast Forward when things open back up and and good luck to you all in your journeys.
1: Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Jenna Glasser.
0: And I'm Joe Berrelli.